Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this is Storymakers Show. And this week we're in a brand new office. It, so might, you, it might be echoey. It might be echoey, empty. but it might also have some traffic sounds in the back. So we will be checking in on audio quality. But for now, this is... Storymakers. And welcome to our downtown Sebastopol office. Downtown. We, we, we might be rural suburban at, at home, but we're right in the center of things here. Yes. <laughs> in our office. <laughs> so what are you working on this weekend? Uh, this week I'm actually looking at developing the storyboards for my script. The countdown is on. I do need to connect with some people around getting the rest of the casting in place and, and you know different bits and pieces but um, really looking at making some good headway on the visual storytelling mm, that's exciting mm-hmm. you feel what 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 are you gonna do it in like are you gonna do it on paper and pen are you gonna use it um, actually I have an application called frameforge 3d okay. and so it allows you to move through space I may not do all of the Film, but what it does allow you to do is set cameras in particular places. Now you're and not so, actually setting the camera down, though, right? So because you're doing no, but you can camera. you can actually say, okay, the camera dollies this way or the camera moves that way. But mm. one of the things I've been struggling with because there are so many characters in this is how to get coverage in an efe- efficient way. Coverage meaning showing the different actors in right. the scene. Their so if I'm talking to you, I need. Some footage of me talking, but I also need your reactions. Mm-hmm. And when we have a group of eight people together, those are eight reactions that we need to get mm. um, and, and sort of the dynamics of the conversation. So this allows me to sort of uh, build the set a little bit and then go in and take a look at how I would structure these things before I actually get to go in there and block with actors. Fantastic. Yeah. That sounds exciting. Well, um, I am, in addition to moving offices, uh, kind of going through the last of my notes. So I put my notes in editorial brackets, and I've pretty much whittled it down to about 10 timeline notes. So I want to use those to map out a timeline, which has actually consistently been an issue with this book. And I guess it's partly because it moves back and forth in time, and also because I changed the whole time frame, so it makes sense. But anyway, so I have to do some timeline work and clarification, and that shouldn't be so overwhelming. And then I think I have about one scene I have to write and a few that I've written that I have to type in and kind of merge with what's there. So anyway, I'm inventorying what I have left and trying to do it in the next few days before we go out of town. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Very exciting. So we said we were going to follow up on our definition of a short story and discuss it a little bit more deeply on a specific short story. And we both this week just read Curtis Sittenfeld's story, Prairie Wife, a prairie wife that's in the current New Yorker issue. So it's a double issue. Um, right. It's the weeks of the 13th, February 13th through and 20th. So mm-hmm. it should be available for a, for a while, uh, certainly after this goes out. And we'll put a link. Uh, you can go to the New Yorker and read that story. So it was interesting because, again, let's let's recap that definition that we took from James Scott Bell. Yeah, so he says, A great short story is about the fallout from one shattering moment. And I just want to say what I loved about that was the focus. Like, I am always looking for a little formula that I can pour all of my wild 
imaginings into, mm-hmm. right? I think it's funny because I think because you teach structure and we're sort of both very interested in structure, I, you don't call it, well, story development, but all those things, I think people sometimes might think that we're very dot to dot by the book people rather than that we're actually trying to contain the the opposite impulse in the extreme right by by right. having some kind of if structure. you saw my desk you would know <laughs> that there was in fact no structure whatsoever i just want to say that's not true and that you've done a fantastic job moving carload by carload moving your office oh, and it looks great and unpacking it i think it looks great but that's an aside um, so one shattering moment. So if you were going to pick one from the story, and I want to just give you a spoiler alert. So if you have mm. not yet read the story, but you want to kind of follow along with our conversation, pause the podcast, go to the show notes. You'll be able to click a link there, read the story. It's a less than 7,000 words, so it shouldn't take you that long to do. It's pretty, it's pretty, uh, you know, and, it moves um, swiftly. it moves. Yes. And so then you can read that and then come back and be part of the conversation. Now, I do want to say that I don't know much about this particular author. And as you're pulling up stuff, I'm noticing additional Well, articles. she wrote Prep. And, um, oh, it's The Prairie Wife. Mm-hmm. She wrote Prep. And then she re- she wrote a book about... Because one would think Curtis is... A, oh, you thought... Oh, you didn't really... She's quite a well-known author, just to say. She's, she wrote um, Prep. And she wrote the thing about... Um, okay. I am typing. That's not just a sound effect. I'm just looking her up because, okay. um, because you know, so, okay. So eligible is like a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice. She wrote a book that was sort of based on, um, I think, Laura Bush called American Wife. Now, the only one I've read is Prep, which is why I keep bringing it. Okay. But in any case, we're talking about this short story right now. And um, I'm just wanting to circle back around to Mike caveat which is that i am not familiar with this author's work and so we're hoping this discussion does not depend on that well um, I, I don't think it does so if you were if i was said okay i'm gonna give you a hundred dollars here's the but you have to give me the right answer what is the shattering moment that this story refers to Well, I have two possibilities, and I just want to give my caveat, which is I listened to this on the New Yorker podcast, which is another place you can get it. You can listen. To, I listened to Chris. Okay, read so it, I read it, and you listened. Which was so actually delightful. But, um, so I would either say, can I say two? I would either say, and now this is total spoiler alert, but I, I would either say it was um, finding, yeah, no, I think it would be when when the person she fooled around with comes out publicly interesting i mean or maybe it would be when she sees her i mean that my other guess is it's this kind of moment pre the story right because she's really in response at the beginning of the story to the fact that this woman has and there's become, flashback yeah so the first thing we know is that this you know Kristen, no kirsten kirsten uh you know i'll just read the first paragraph shall i great the understanding is that after Casey's iPhone alarm goes off at 6.15 a.m., Kirsten wakes the boys, nudges them to get dressed, and herds them downstairs, all while Casey is showering. I'm just going to actually just leave it at there. But just to say, so Kirsten, um, instead of doing that, is actually on her iPhone, look, you know, obsessing about Lucy Hedrick, this, this person. Hedrick, with, yeah. Well, I, Did it, they say Hedrick? It says Hedrick, yeah. 
It's on the online. It's probably a typo. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't have thought H E A D would have been head, but anyway. Hedrick, okay. I don't know what they said. Well, you listened to it. I know I did, but I don't know what they said. Anyway, um, <laughs> she is just, so, so I think we were not being clear at all. She's become famous. Lucy. Lucy, and she's someone Kirsten knew in the past. That's really all we know. And Kirsten's furious about this and obsessed with this and kind of just in this sort of rage, this sort of pre-orgasmic rage about Yes, it. which often <laughs> becomes a post-orgasmic rage, but on her own. And she's, so that, so, so, so in a way, the, what's, what's Belle's language? The shattering the moment. The shattering moment might be kind of this discovery that this woman she knew has become this kind of conservative wife, mother, blogger person. Who is passing herself off in a way that fe- makes her feel unseen, basically. Well, because we come to find out more spoilers. I think the shattering moment is the hookup. When the two of them hook up? Mm-hmm. Well, because it changes her. I mean, that's the thing that everything changes Everything is actually everything. fallout. Now, we don't know that. So there's, there's several re- revelations, and the final one, which we may try not to spoil, is... No, we're going to just okay, spoil this. Spoil it's it like, all. If you see the cover image, it's like a peach coming apart. Is it? And, yeah, the two hands pulling a peach apart. The cover of the New Yorker? No, the cover of the, oh, well, the, the, story. the story image. <laughs> and, so um, that's not a spoiler right there. And, you know, so sh- just imagine that we're throwing questionable fruit against a wall. This is... All spoiler all the time. All spoiler all the okay. time. Okay. All right. So you either go read it if you don't want to, or you read it. With- We've already given them the copy. Okay. I'm just reminding you. <laughs> In case you just can't bring yourself to turn off the podcast. You know, it might be beneficial to read it after the podcast, all after the spoilers for the craft of it. Okay. <laughs> you can laugh out loud at me. Okay. So you think it's the hookup. I guess that does make sense. But then if you're the writer and you think of, I mean, I don't know how you think about it, but it's like, how does, you know, how does this story unfold the way it unfolds from that moment? Well, there's a couple of things and it's sort of, you know, what she's examining and I think is interesting is that piece about being seen and that um, Lucy had actually persisted somewhat after their summer camp mm-hmm, hookup, mm-hmm. Um, but that she was in this sort of state of denial about who Lucy was. And who she was. And who she was. But in a state of, like, that she was sort of wanting to box Lucy and put her out of her place until she was really ready to be that person. Yeah, like, Lucy's a lesbian, Kirsten is not. Like, that was one of the the things. So in the opening things, Lucy's a lesbian, Kirsten is not. And, of course, the twist at the end is Uh. that Kirsten's Casey is a woman. And that she's in a relationship, a married long-term relationship with a woman. And so, you know, a lot of the struggle she's having is how do I process someone who is benefiting um, in this way from not revealing that part of who they are? And we all know those people. Right. And so we've all... So so I think it's a very interesting exploration. And I'm just going to throw the whole thing to the wind and say that Lucy, after, you know, referring to her new husband as a stud in overalls and becoming uh, not, and I think that's the thing. She's not a Christian conservative. Right. She's not just someone who is, oh, I used to date women and now I date men. She is someone who has gone this 
full transition, almost 180 She's degrees. even like, she's even Previously thinner. Previously she was butch, she and now she hair. Yeah, yeah. So there's... But before you say the thing that she does, I want to say that um, Kirsten, one of the things she's contemplating is kind of outing Lucy, right? right. That she has this power, that she could sort of destroy Lucy Heed slash Hedrick by, mm-hmm. by letting everybody know this, this dark truth. Right. So, you know, so what's interesting then is that that other character comes out. And in the Lucy, end, in her on a talk show, says that she used to date women and that she identifies as bisexual. And even though she's monogamous and madly in love with her husband, she wants people to know because there are teenagers out there who are suffering, and right. she wants them to know they're not alone. I mean, it's, and it's actually this sort of very moving, right? And then, ironically, of course, we get below that anger and that rage of not being seen by the world, and it's actually a deep grief about not being seen. In her relationship. Mm, right. And so, um, and it's not like they have a bad relationship no. at all, but she wants to be, you know, she, she really connects Lucy not just with, like, the queerness of her, but with that moment where she was an object of desire. She was pursued She by was pursued and she was loved. And obviously, you know, there was a point in her relationship with Casey where that happened. But now they're parents, and now they're doing that day-to-day thing um, where they have to be that kind of steady, steady on. And, and, and what was so remarkable was how that relationship got laid out, and we just assumed Casey was a man, you know, right? This nice kind of, whatever, metrosexual man or whatever, right? Like this junior high, middle school principal, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, but it was also identifiable, right? I mean, I felt like, oh, I, I totally get their marriage dynamic and the kids, and do we bring the kid his violin that he left, or do we let him learn the consequences? I mean, all of the sort of marriage mm-hmm. stuff felt very familiar to me. Now, you could, I guess, argue that, well, it's because they were two women, but I think it was really presented. Right. So I think there's two things that are really interesting to me about that story, and one is sort of the architecture of it. I think you definitely walk away with a feeling about the intention. So we talk about a premise, and I really feel like this has a premise. Which is? Um, You know, I think that something about... um, I hadn't concentrated, but like I think you can tell there's a premise when you walk away from something and you're like, yeah. You know, or I hadn't thought about it that way. Or, or you have to read this, right? Like right. I walked in the door and I said, you have to read this. Mm-hmm. And I made you. And I was a little bit mad at you until you did. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> but that is, I mean, I just want to say that in terms of being, in terms of for a writer, I think that's kind of the greatest thing you can do. Is right. Have but basically you can follow this character as having a mindset through the whole thing. Up until that end. So if you wanted to do, and maybe what I'll try and do, no no guarantees because I'm super busy right now, but it's something I wanted to do anyway is to sort of break out the seven steps because I think that the seven steps are all there, but I'm not sure they're in the same order mm-hmm. that we would expect them to expect to see them. But most of all, I think it'll be interesting to see how the seven steps might apply to flashbacks. So I think that well, that's let's, a... let's can I can I throw a few at you and let's just mm-hmm. see what you think. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think the ordinary world of the story is? The ordinary world is is present day now. 
Kristen and and, and Casey's, Casey's marriage. Yeah, and that's the ordinary one. And her obsession with Lucy. Right. What is the inciting incident? Um, well, we're, we're seeing Lucy on the day of her publication. So mm-hmm. it's not just she's gotten famous, because she's been famous. She is famous in the ordinary world. Um, I think that the thing that is the inciting incident that sort of sets her off a little bit um, might just be that the, this is the day where she's not just being a blogger, now she's stepping into this big wide world of television. Yeah, and she's even going to see her in this different way, yeah. right? Okay, so that's the inciting incident. What is the act one decision? And I, it might be just when she goes with her office mate, the gay man Frank. office mate, to the bar to watch the show instead of... Does she bring she, she does bring it, it. That actually is a little bit confusing because it sounds like she goes to the bar, but I don't remember... But then the later, it, later she brought the it, it, it violin. says, Mommy brought me my violin. Right. But, so, but that might have been Casey. Right. We didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. But I think Casey says, isn't that nice of her? Anyway, it was a little confusing in that moment. Well, because it might have been... Kristen saying. No, no. Kristen. Anyway, we'll take a Kristen. look at it. Okay. Um, act one decision. Act one decision. And, to, and, and so act one decision is when the, the kind of the, the protagonist commits to the journey. Right. Um, it might be going to the bar. I mean, I have to say, like, it's not the kind of thing that... Could it be a flashback? That's the question, right? Could it be when she decides to sleep with Lucy, when she goes behind the shed back in the day and... Mm. and well, it would be interesting to see where that lays out in terms of the chronology right. of the story it itself. Yeah. Because um, I don't know. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So that's where it starts to get less clear. How about... Um, midpoint? Midpoint. Everything changes. Probably her coming out. I think that's true. Yeah. The whole the whole sort of terms of the story change. Right. There. Yeah. She doesn't get to be uh, bashing on Lucy anymore. <laughs> Lucy's a person. Yeah. And then low point. Um, I think the low point is, um, you know, when when she's in bed with Casey. Casey. Um, but then, what's the final battle? Um, I think that I think there's actually a low point before that. Like, she goes to bed and they te- she texts Casey, right, "I'm going to texting, bed," and they're yeah. like, and and so I actually think that might be the low point. She's feeling very. Yeah. Oh, and also she says, she comes in and she says, Lucy Hedrick came out, and and then Casey says, who's Lucy Hedrick again? Like, doesn't even remember who she is. No. Yeah. No, that was the early one. No, no, no. Oh, right, right. She comes home to the den and Casey is watching. Yeah. And she says, she came out and she says, who is she again? Like, she doesn't even remember, like, this is someone she hooked up with her and and she's feeling very disconnected. And Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of that low point stuff. Well, I like to actually have the text in front of me to do this. So this is all completely theoretical. Um, But anyways, so. But I think that's possible. And then the final battle then could be when she actually admits to Casey, like, I want somebody to be excited by me. Yeah, there's this wonderful part where she says something about, like, are you afraid you'll look up in 20 years and we'll just, this is what we'll have been doing? And Casey sort of says, like, I hope so. Like, we would be, should be so lucky kind of thing. Right, and right. Like, um, yeah. And um, 
And she tweets Lucy. Mm-hmm. She tweets, which she hasn't done. Right. So she takes the action to tweet Lucy and says, I think you were brave. And then tweet, Lucy doesn't tweet her back. Right. Because, of course, Lucy has no idea who she is. She's got a fake Twitter handle. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but what has she learned? What has she learned? I think it's you? now less... Um, subconscious well you said also you said you know lucy's a person and so then she can respond to lucy like she's not just a you know she can she can say something to lucy and it might matter right but i also think that you know if you said what did she learn i think she over the course moves from a place of unthinking reaction to communicating even though it's kind of and maybe humiliating even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To say that I that I want this thing, like from your partner, and you don't have sex, and you don't, it's like, eh. Like, no, no, I'm, I'm hoping for something else. You know, I'm hoping for this interaction, this desire from you. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not going to be there. Yeah. And, and I it's think, not, so, again, it's not that it's bad what they have. It's not that they never have sex. It's, I mean, they don't in that moment. Right. They don't in that moment. Because lesbians have sex, so let's be clear. <laughs> This is rated PG-13. Right. Um, okay. So I think we've done a good job of talking about the seven steps. Well, we'll um, find out later. What about we? a great short story is about... Oh, I know I've... A shattering... follow-up from, from one sh- shattering moment. Well, I think that we just went through that. that In sh- a way, the shattering moment is the end then, maybe, though. And here's the thing. Belle does say it's not something that has to be located in any particular place. It doesn't have to even happen during the course of, of what you read as the story. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking about Lori Moore's story. Gosh, I can't remember the title. Where she drops the baby. I don't remember. So she's got a story where someone's holding a baby and drops them. Like, uh, I don't think they die, but it's, a, it's bad. Yeah. Uh, and so there's, you know, that the rest of that story is kind of classically, okay, well, that's the shattering instant moment, oh, okay, and, and that's, and that's, you know, the rest of the story is sort of the fallout from that. It's so funny mm-hmm. also to think of the memory, how memory works. So if I haven't read these stories recently, it's like, remember that whole story that was about the... all you remember is the one shattering moment, maybe. Right. Um, <laughs> Actually, you know, thinking about. Um, yeah, just like like the the dead, right? Is this such? Is this really long story where there's a whole kind of d- dinner party, you know, and and all these things, and then at the very end is when he's he's found out that his wife had this lover and who died and is in the graveyard. And he's looking out and the snow. Fall, there's like gorgeous line about the snow falling, and I mean that's the moment, right? And mm-hmm. I know everything else is brilliant, and amazing, and I should probably reread it because it's been a while. But but that moment is the moment I remember. Right. So, but but what I love about the the Sittenfeld story is that there that that it isn't the reason it isn't clear is not because there are no shattering moments, but because <laughs> there are several. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. I actually I don't I I kind of read the end not as shattering, mm-hmm. but as a place to move forward from, so that she's acknowledged this need. This is like a new new thing it was not something she was willing to be super clear with lucy about it was not something that she was acknowledging to herself as she was so angry about what lucy was getting and she says they don't have sex they don't reach any resolutions but for the first time in a while kirsten falls asleep with her wife's arms around her 
in the middle. Yeah. So she's reconnecting. So I don't think that that's a shattering. I don't think that right, end no, no, is a shattering moment at all. Um, and so, I you know, it's interesting. How do you define shattering? Because it doesn't necessarily is it if if it's the hookup. That doesn't necessarily have negative connotations. If mm-hmm. it's if it can be positively shattering, right? That was positively shattering, my dear. Um, if the it's you know the thing about um, she does talk about how she becomes more aware of the of Lucy's fame, mm-hmm. and so that might have been the shattering moment, right? So it, that has a more negative uh, con. Or impact connotation. Yeah. Even, yeah, somehow just not, yeah, like, but somehow becoming increasingly aware doesn't sound quite like Right, but there's a moment where where she realizes she she sees her in the magazine. You know what? She's an alumni of this camp. So she sends that she gets this thing that she realizes she knows who Lucy Hedrick is, but then she gets this thing that's like, oh, Lucy Hedrick is this other person that she hooked up with. And was so that was shocking to her. I mean, I do think that shattered her. So that that probably. I bet that's it. Because yeah. there's that moment where that it's, moment. it all comes together. I love that. It's, this is a this is kind of a brilliant short story. Yeah, and um, just to say, Curtis, if you feel like coming on Storymakers, <laughs> we would love to have you be part of this kind of conversation. Yeah. She does have a book coming out of shorts, her first short story collection called "You'll Think You Think It, I'll Say It," and that'll be next year. Well played. Okay, so we also want to talk about at the end here. Uh, we want to talk briefly about the middle. The middle. So in our book in a year class, we were talking about midpoint. Mm-hmm. And um, it was so interesting to me and exciting to see this midpoint moment. And maybe you can go over briefly sort of what the scope of the midpoint is. But just be, though, to see those elements gave so much information about what needs to come before it to set it up and what what will come out after it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me think about, you know, there are people who start with the first line and people who, like John Irving famously, has has to know the last line before he starts writing oh, and he writes toward it. Other people could never do that. They'd be bored witless or whatever. So everyone has their sort of, what do you actually know? And it just made me curious what it would be like to know the midpoint. Okay, ironically, James Scott Bell has a book on writing your book from the middle. <laughs> that James Scott Bell. I know. He's he all over the place. Um, Tell us about the midpoint. Well, actually, what I what I am more intrigued about with the middle, and I we can talk about the midpoint. But the thing that I actually am intrigued by is one. It, it's often seen as this sort of floppy, flaggy place where you know story That's goes the danger. to die. That's the danger. <laughs> and um, and I think we exhibited in our discussions of stories previously read that very often you can remember the beginning and you can remember the end but very often you can't remember the middle although for example you brought up um fingersmith in class yesterday and so i was going to speak to that because yeah. it, that is actually the end of the point of view of one of the characters mm. and we begin a new point and it's of view a shattering it's a shattering it moment it's a shattering moment so with those two things in mind which two? Uh, that we forget the middle very often, <laughs> and the middle is a place where stories go to die. Um, that, I think the most useful thing to sort of talk about is the idea of breaking it down into smaller spaces of beginning and end. 
and so multiple so the, beginning, middles, and ends. Right, and so the midpoint then I think, as we were talking about in class, the midpoint is a crucial giant step, you know. And I think one of the things that's hard is is that um, we often mistake something that has a huge amount of impact for being something that's easy to see. So, for example, a lot of times you'll have uh, a story, you know, newer writers will talk about like, okay, conflict means people have to be fighting each other in a, in a very literal sense. Whereas, you know, we've all read amazing uh, high conflict, high drama books where there's a lot of indirection and misdirection and that it's not necessarily that same head-on kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. battle. So when I'm talking about a big, relevant midpoint, uh, I'm talking about a point that really is big enough to reset, recalibrate the whole story. Mm-hmm. And it's often, you know, the reason we talk about new information happening there is because, uh, you know, as we travel through the story, there's always going to be something we're not thinking about. There's some mm-hmm. blind side. And, and a really great um, midpoint will allow us to redirect our story uh, by highlighting that blind spot. And I mean, another word for new information would be a revelation, right? Yes. Yeah. So that revelation should be relevant, right? Um, But also if you have a character who is, you know, sort of succeeding in the first things, there's stuff they're not thinking about. There's a certain amount of um, maybe hubris that goes with that. I'm in the new story world. I'm learning how to do these things, and I'm I'm not so bad, right? And uh, the midpoint says, but you weren't thinking about this. And so that new information, that revelation, causes the main character to reassess: Is my goal that I entered this world with appropriate, mm-hmm. uh, or of value, and makes it more difficult for the protagonist to continue on with their uh, process, their goal. So the stakes are higher, the consequences of not succeeding become significantly greater. So what do you think about starting in the middle? Uh, I don't know. I I think that, um, I think story moves around all the time, frankly. You know, I do, I do talk a lot about the seven steps and I do talk about these forms, these sort of modified um, writers, models. There's all kinds of different things that you can do. Um, So I don't think there's any reason why you can't start in the middle. Um, For me, it, I think maybe I'm learning more about the middle now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I don't know. What's the midpoint of your screenplay? Um, the midpoint of my screenplay right now is that, um, you know, I don't, I have to, you have to build it. I have to go, yeah. I, I have not like sat down with the actual screenplay for a while and it's a multi protagonist story yeah, yeah, yeah. and I don't hold whole things in my head, <laughs> but in, in developing it makes more sense for me to sort of take something like I do think if you had a wonderful what-if kind of construct and you had that as your midpoint. So um, 
for example, if you had one of those stories, well, you know, like, like I have one of those stories where we don't know who the bad guy is, mm-hmm. and then we discover very often at the midpoint that the bad guy is the person who has up to this point seemed like the ally. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great one. So it's like, you know, what if, um, you know, a preschool was overtaken <laughs> by... Um, a sinister, power-hungry... <laughs> diaper service. Diaper service. <laughs> so, you know, and so up until that point, we think that the diaper service is there to really support that preschool, but what it turns out is that they're actually on the side giving the kids more and more juice so that... <laughs> and so we might discover that at the midpoint, and then we have to resolve it because, um, you know... Things are going bad. Things are, you know, yeah. landfill from the juice boxes. It is time for Steal This. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. What do you want to take and make your own this week? Um, You know, one of the things that I, again, I'll go back to the um, Curtis Sittenfeld. Yeah. And I didn't get a chance to sort of talk about it, but I think that she does some wonderful stuff with thematics and... Um, sort of the how social media plays out mm. through that and kind of the evolution of the social media, right? Mm. So when we realized that Lucy had given her a mixtape, right? That is sort of the iconic um, sharing. Social media? <laughs> I think it is. It was the iconic sharing of information and media from that time. And so now... You know, we have Twitter, we have these things, but what are we actually really learning as we as we use these technologies, right? So um, I'm very interested right now, as I am working in the visual aspect of my storytelling, what are the uh, pieces that can be multiplied to build thematic resonance as I go through this process? What are the pieces that can be, so that they were, like, motifs? Yeah. That they can repeat and, and accrue meaning. Yes. Yeah. And I will say when I when I teach that I always find that, and I know you know this, but that they, they have to be incredibly literally accurate. Mm. You know, they come out of the real stuff of the story, the real props, the real actions, the real setting, and they function deeply on that level. And it's from that deep, literal functioning that the resonances and thematics mm-hmm. sort of rise up. Well, you know, that puts me in mind of Dorothy Allison. I think the short story is called Gospel Song or something like that. But it's about, you know, an albino girl who is struggling in the South, right? And, you know, she's sort of mean, and Dorothy Allison's narrator is sort of mean. And in the end, she burns up. She, like, catches fire. And if you go back and you look at it, all the way through the story, descriptions of, I think her name was Shannon Pearl, descriptions of this girl are laced with heat and flame. And, Mm. you know, there's this, so that she's, by the time she burns up, you know, she was sort of burning the whole time. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it didn't stick out as you were doing it, right? So. It's those little pieces that I think add a level of richness that just structure can't, or just character can't burn. Mm-hmm. And and it's the, these are also things you layer in. You mm-hmm. discover mm-hmm. in your book, oh, this is what's going to happen to her 
or or maybe conversely, oh, like I'm always dra- drawing her out of flame, and so mm-hmm. maybe what if she literally, right? I mean, so literally burst into flame. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, I just finished reading Heather Young's The Lost Girls, and what I thought was so brilliant was the way that she planted revelations. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a you know fairly traditional structure of moving back and forth chapter by chapter between a, a sort of well, it's actually a 1999, but in the present day story and then the past, the long ago past. And um, and eventually you, you know that the, the long ago past is actually a written piece meant to be read by the pr- protagonist of the, the current story. But she hasn't read it. She doesn't get to read it till the end. Um, so we, the readers, learn from that past story little by little things, you know, that then impact how we see the other characters, even though they haven't learned those things yet. And and so it keeps, the revelations from the backstory keep impacting mm-hmm. the present story, um, and the reader knows more than the characters, and it's it's very delightful. And It's it, a dramatic irony. Yeah, and it seems like you'd need a giant piece of paper and a big, <laughs> you know, just map it out, like, what are the revelations? And and what does it mean if this revelation happens here? You know, I mean, mm. and maybe it's just intuitive and maybe we'll get to ask her. But um, so I want to think about revelation and I actually want my reader to help me think about that. Too. And it's interesting because that dramatic irony is something that gets used all over the place all the time. And we actually can use cultural shared experiences to create dramatic irony, even without referencing it. So if you set a book in 1999, or you set a book in um, July of 2001, because it's such a cultural moment, and we know what's coming on September 11th, 2001, but the characters don't, your reader is going to bring all of that with them without you having to do anything. Yeah, I mean, the end of 1999 was more like, the characters all think something's coming in. What we know is, nah, not really. <laughs> no Y2K. <laughs> right, but... But, you know, Matt Bird says, because because irony is essentially the, the gap between expectation and result, um, or, right, expectation and what actually happens, um, that, of course, the story has to be laden well, with... Right. But I think it's very different in, in the sense that it is it can be very manipulative when it's not well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it is well done, I think it's a great way to infuse a moment with emotion. Well, let, let me last thing about Curtis and Paul's story. What do you make of her of her withholding, I mean withhold, withholding this information that Casey's a woman? Until the end, because it's could you know it could be coy. I mean, I think it's because it's so thematically relevant to the story, um, and she doesn't ever say Casey's a man. We just assume it, right? So it's well, she always uses Casey, right? So I don't know. What do you make of that? Like, do you, I mean, would you say she gets away with it? I do. I think so. I think it's successful, um, in part because. It's, again, setting up that expectation. What do we bring to a story? How do we understand why a character... I mean, it's about being seen and not being seen. And what what we bring to our assumptions about other people. Yeah. And so. just, just, just like somebody who's on a talk show, here we have somebody who's in a short story. And yes. the New Yorker, and what do we assume about that person? Right. Interesting. 
Well, send us your questions and comments to questions at storymakersshow.com. Rate us on iTunes. We would love it. And uh, I think we have about six ratings now. So you could could just like personally, you know, raise our ratings by more than 10%. You. And then we're going to do a quick poll. Do you prefer it when we're having a drink or when we're not drinking? So... Can you ring tell? Ring, can, you, can, you, can you even tell? Were so, we sober this episode or not? <laughs> How about the last one? How about the one before that? Um, all right. Have a great time with your writing, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>